You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open the Word of our God. Turn to a familiar passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's now open our Bibles to the text for the sermon this afternoon. Mark 1, verses 29 to 34. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
Love a congregation of Lord Jesus. This afternoon, we're continuing with our series of sermons on Mark. In the passages we've looked at so far, we've seen how the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us in the early days of His ministry in Galilee. The Gospel begins with the Old Testament prophet, John, and continues with the baptism of Jesus, His anointing with the Holy Spirit, His entering into the Messianic office. And Jesus begins His official ministry by prophetically preaching and calling disciples like no one else ever has. Last time, we heard about the day God came to the synagogue in Capernaum. And as you remember, it was on the Sabbath, the day of freedom. The Lord Jesus came with freedom. Freedom in His teaching and in His casting out a demon from a child of the covenant. We saw that we have a mighty Savior who's worthy of our worship and our adoration. There's no one else like Him. So not surprisingly, when we left off last time, news about Him had begun spreading all over the region of Galilee. As we come to our passage for this afternoon, I want to begin with something from Tom Wright's popular little commentary on Mark. Mark for everyone. He tells of a disaster at sea. Perhaps it was real. Perhaps it's just a story. He doesn't say. As you listen to it, it may sound a little bit familiar from some recent events in maritime history in British Columbia. Tom Wright is not from Canada. He's British. Anyway, he tells the story about a ferry filled with cars and tourists. After the sun had set, the ferry set sail, but somehow someone had forgotten to properly close the doors on the car deck. And as the ferry made its way into the open seas in the dark of night, the water became rough and the waves grew higher and higher. And before long, the ferry began to capsize. And once people realized what was happening, panic set in. People were screaming, and then the upper decks were awash with pandemonium. All of a sudden, one man took charge. He wasn't a member of the crew, but nevertheless, he spoke. And he did so with a clear and authoritative voice. He gave orders, directed people as to what they should do. And as a result, many people reached the lifeboats. However, below decks were even more people. They were trapped. And the only way that they could be rescued was for this one man to form a human bridge with his body. Holding on with one hand to a ladder and with the other to part of the ship that was nearly submerged, his efforts allowed even more people to reach safety. And at the end of the ordeal, it was discovered that even though so many lives had been saved, the man himself had drowned. In using the authority he took on to save others, he had given his own life. Well, it's a similar scene we see unfolding in the seaside town of Capernaum. Here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, we see Jesus of Nazareth, not one of the recognized rabbis or the scribes, not a Pharisee, speaking with authority, acting with authority, 
He's preached before, and is likely still preaching, about the coming of the kingdom. But he not only speaks in general terms, he also speaks concrete words of deliverance and salvation to individuals. And in that way, he acts for God's people who've been enslaved, whose lives have become a nightmare. And in the process, the Lord Jesus is on his way to losing his own life. As we read the Gospel of Mark, it's essential to keep in mind that what we have in the first 15 chapters is all part of his humiliation, his descent. He is on his way to Golgotha, on his way to the cross. This is the road of suffering. And the end result is the coming of the kingdom, which brings lasting wholeness for God's people. That's our theme this afternoon as we look at verses 29 to 34. The coming of the kingdom brings lasting wholeness for God's people. So when we left off last time, the Lord Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now keep in mind that it's the Sabbath. He left the synagogue along with the four disciples and they went to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon, also known as Peter, evidently lived with his brother and then possibly also with his mother-in-law, along with, of course, his, his wife and whatever children he may have had. It's the mother-in-law that's the focus of this first section. Mark tells us that she was laying in bed with a fever. Now, the word that's used there in the original for fever doesn't give us any detail about what kind of fever or what may have caused it or anything like that. It could have been malaria. Malaria is a common disease in that area, but we can't say for sure. We also can't say for sure whether or not this was a life-threatening fever. Nevertheless, the disciples were concerned about him, about her rather. So concerned that they told the Lord Jesus about her. Now let's just stop here for a moment, pause and consider why they told him about her. Now keep in mind what had just happened at the synagogue. A demon-possessed man, not just any man you remember, it was a member of the covenant, an Israelite, been set free. The Lord Jesus had delivered him. And now we have Peter's mother-in-law with a fever. There's a connection between these two people. Some of the Jewish rabbis considered fever to be demonic in some sense. In our world, of course, fever has a medical explanation. We know that it's a, a defensive mechanism of the body to ward off infection. But in the world of the New Testament, many of these things were considered to have a spiritual connection or a spiritual origin. The disciples had just seen the Lord Jesus deliver a man from the oppressive power of a demon. They knew that he had power and that he had authority over these sorts of things. So then it would only make sense that they would tell him about Peter's mother-in-law. After all, if the Lord Jesus could deliver the demon-possessed man, surely he could also do something about this fever, which may also have had some demonic connection. And he did. He goes to her. He takes her hand and he helps her up. 
And he does all this with his characteristic compassion and gentleness. And the result is that the fever left her. Now, unfortunately, our translation leaves out an important word here. It's that word that Mark often uses, immediately. The word is used at the beginning of our passage, and in our translation, you can see it's uh, given as as soon as. It could also be translated immediately. It's used in verse 30 when the disciples tell Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law, although there too, the NIV leaves it out. And then it's also left out in verse 31 where it literally reads, immediately the fever left her. Now why is that word important? Why am I bringing this up? Well, because that little word, it is a little word in Greek, it's a bigger word in English, of course, but that word, it portrays the power of our Savior to us. The fever didn't leave her in an hour or two. Didn't leave her the following day or week. She was healed immediately. The Holy Spirit wants us to read this and stand in awe of our Savior and His power. You see, part of what God wants to do with this passage is to wake us up. Wake us up to the fact that too often our conception of Christ is too small. We think of Him in far too limited a way. We not only underestimate His power and the power of His Holy Spirit, we also sometimes underestimate the extent of His salvation. In the sweet by and by, He brings salvation for our souls. But He really doesn't have that much to do with the here and now, with our bodies, our physical existence here on this earth. And so often we're practically Gnostic in the way we think about Christ. Now maybe you've heard of the Gnostics and Gnosticism. Gnostic, by the way, it's not spelt the way it sounds. It's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic. Maybe you've heard of it. And we don't have time to go into all the details of what Gnosticism was all about. If you have a Bible encyclopedia at home, you can, you can check that out or a church history book. Suffice it to say that it was a spiritual movement after the time of the apostles. Elements of it were already in existence in the time the New Testament was written. Simply put, Gnosticism was a mixture of Christianity and pagan mystery religions. It was very eclectic. That was part of its character. And it could take on all sorts of different forms in different areas and at different times. But it had a number of things in common in all its different manifestations. And one of the defining features of Gnosticism in all its various forms was the setting up of matter and spirit against one another. Matter is evil. Matter has to do with Satan. Spirit, on the other hand, is good. Spirit has to do with God. And so when we speak about man, man's flesh and his body, his bones, well, that's evil. It's man's spirit, it's man's soul that's good. 
Now, in this viewpoint, influenced Christians who would otherwise be orthodox. There were Christians who would come to see Christ as the Savior of the soul, but His work had nothing to do with the body. The soul is redeemable, but the body, well, that's just a shell, something that gets thrown away and you die. And the body either cannot or will not be redeemed. Well, that view shows the influence of Gnostic thinking. Many Christians today still think this way. Perhaps without even realizing it. Without even realizing it, they regard Christ as half a Savior because they only think that He came to save their souls and not their bodies too. And what they forget is a glorious truth. A glorious truth that Jesus Christ Himself is sitting at the right hand of God at this very moment, right now as we're sitting here. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God with human flesh and blood. It's a glorified body, but it is flesh and blood like you and I have. At this very moment, Jesus Christ has a brain. He has a heart. He's got lungs, liver and kidneys. He has arteries, he has veins, and there's blood blood flowing through there. He has glands and every other component of a human body that you can think of. Brothers and sisters, He is the first fruits of our resurrection. And He is the proof that our bodies are destined for the same thing, for glorification. Why? Because He redeemed them. When we live in the new heavens and new earth, after the resurrection of the dead, we will have glorified bodies like He has. And these body, those bodies, they will be the bodies we have today. They will still have brains. They will still have hearts and lungs and so on. The body is not evil. When God created it, He said that it's very good. And sure, it fell under the curse of sin. But we have a Redeemer. And He has also redeemed our bodies. Now think of what we confess in the Hatterberg Catechism. That we belong with body and soul to our faithful Savior. Brothers and sisters, never, ever, ever take those words for granted. Body and soul. You see, by not taking those words for granted, we give more glory to Christ. And we recognize what a great Savior we have. Well, while the disciples may have thought His healing of Peter's mother-in-law was some sort of deliverance from demonic oppression, The Lord Jesus knew, I can say this for sure, that this fever had to do with the brokenness of the human body. She had a fever because she lived in a world affected by the fall into sin. We know it as well. Christ was restoring her body to wholeness. And this too was tied into the coming of the kingdom. It pointed forward to the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness. For when the kingdom fully comes, our bodies will be restored to what they were created to be. And so when we fix our eyes on Jesus here in this passage, we have hope in our hearts even as our bodies are breaking down. 
You know, all of us are dying. Even though some of us perhaps in more obvious ways. We may not think of ourselves as dying. But we are. Unless the Lord returns, there will be a funeral for each one of us here this afternoon. That's not a nice thought, perhaps. But it's realistic. As our bodies die, we know the kingdom comes. There is suffering and there is brokenness in this world. But when we see Jesus in our text, we rest our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed at the return of our Savior. He is a full and complete Savior. And His resurrection body is the guarantee that His salvation is the full package deal. What an awesome Savior we have. What a hope He gives us, even in the midst of suffering and brokenness. And what kind of a response does this redemption find among God's people? Well, just look here in our passage at verse 31. When Simon's mother-in-law was healed, what did she do? Well, right away, she began to wait on them or to serve them. Now, them here obviously includes the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus and, and those disciples who were called to follow him. Do you see a familiar pattern here? This is the pattern that's found among the apostles. It's found in the epistles of Paul. He lays out God's salvation, and then he describes the service which will inevitably follow. The Heidelberg Catechism follows exactly the same pattern. Our life of grateful service is built upon the foundation of God's salvation in Christ. It's a thoroughly scriptural concept. It's found here as well. Christ brings wholeness to Peter's mother-in-law, and so she's set free. Not to serve her own agenda, but to serve him and others. Does the same for us, doesn't he? The gracious gift of salvation comes from God so that we too, we would serve him and others with our whole life. We're saved to serve. And all of that happened on the Sabbath day. As we read it in Mark, the Lord chose to begin His healings and exorcisms on the day that commemorated Israel's liberation from Egypt's slavery. In this way, He's the new Joshua, bringing Israel into the promised land of freedom, a land of milk and honey, a land where there's renewed fellowship with God. Amazing. And even more amazing is that he doesn't stop with the Sabbath day. Verse 32 tells us that evening came and the sun set. Now we might easily gloss over this detail. However, we need to keep in mind that when the sun set, the Sabbath was over. It was a new day of the week in the Jewish calendar. The Sabbath was officially from sunset to sunset. If you remember, that's why the body of Jesus had to be taken down from the cross so quickly. And so the sun sets and the Sabbath is over. 
That's why all these people came rushing to Jesus. There were restrictions on how far one could travel on the Sabbath day. You've probably heard the expression, a Sabbath day's journey. There were restrictions on what they could carry on the Sabbath, and so on. Once the Sabbath was over, the people could carry on as they normally would. Having heard about Jesus' reputation, they they brought to Him all the sick and and all the demon-possessed as well. In fact, Mark tells us that the whole town gathered at the door of the house of Peter and Andrew. Of course, we recognize, I think, that there's some hyperbole going on here. A little bit of exaggeration for the sake of uh, rhetoric. It's not necessarily the case that every last person in Capernaum was there. The point is that it was a huge crowd. And as far as Jewish towns go, Capernaum was quite large. There were probably several thousand people living there at the time of the Lord Jesus. Many of them crowd around the door to the house. And the Lord Jesus, well, he didn't disappoint them. The Holy Spirit tells us that he healed many who had various diseases, and he drove out many demons. Here too, we might read that word many and and wonder if that means that there were some who were not healed or some whose demons were not driven out as if it was possible that he tried to heal them. He made the effort, but for some reason he couldn't do it. Well, we shouldn't read it that way. There could have been those who couldn't make it to the door of the house for, for whatever reason. When we get to chapter 2, we'll, we'll read of another healing in Capernaum. So obviously there was at least one person who didn't make it that night. But we also need to keep in mind that the word many could also mean all among the Jews when they spoke Aramaic. And so this word many in no way at all detracts from the glory of Christ in this passage. In fact, that word it lifts up Christ and it exalts Him before our eyes and our ears. Now let's take a step back and, and, and consider what's happening here in, in the broader context. Well, first of all, as I just mentioned, the Sabbath is over. But the healing and the freedom that the Lord Jesus came to bring just keeps on going. For those who believe in Him, this is the beginning of the eternal Sabbath. He brings wholeness that doesn't just belong on on one day, but that lasts through the whole week. He's the Savior to whom the Sabbath pointed. But He goes far beyond the Sabbath with the salvation and the freedom He brings. This is the Savior for God's people for every day of the week. And second, even while this healing and this freedom is going on, it's coming the Lord Jesus suffered. This was the eternal Son of God through whom all things were made. And when all things were made, they were declared to be good by the Father. And then came the serpent and the fall into sin. Sin brought disease and death into the world. Sin brought demon possession into the world. Sin brought the need for a Savior. As the crowds gathered at the door, the Lord Jesus must have looked out at this crowd of people 
broken lives. It must have been saddened by what sin had done to humanity, and in particular to these people, God's own people. All these people broken and wounded. Some, perhaps, because of their own foolishness. But many who'd also been victimized. And here you can think of those who were demon-possessed. Seeing and experiencing the brokenness of a world captive to sin and its effects. That was part of his humiliation. Being there among God's people and taking on the very flesh that was suffering. That was part of his suffering. And do you know why this matters for us? Because it drove him to the cross for us. Seeing all this brokenness, what sin had done to the world, he knew why he had been sent by the Father into the world. He knew what he had to do. He could give healing in the temporal sense. He could give healing for the the here and now. But all those people, every single last one of them, eventually died. There was something more. There was something much, much greater that he was about. His healings and exorcisms served a greater purpose, bringing him to the cross where he would bring lasting wholeness for God's people in every sense of the word, physical and spiritual. And that's why the last verse of our text tells us about what he did with the demons. Like with the man in the synagogue, he cast them out. But Mark tells us that as with the other demon, the Lord Jesus did not allow them to speak. The reason is given there. It's simply that they knew who he was. In other words, they knew, like that other demon, that he was the Holy One of God. They knew that he was the Messiah, long promised to crush the head of the serpent. God allowed that first demon to speak, but now these ones must be kept quiet. Remember what Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. These demons are on a tight leash and they can only do as much as they're allowed to. And in this we see the sovereign Christ and we see the sovereign plan for our redemption. That's evident in the measured revelation of Jesus' identity. Though he allowed the first one to speak, the Lord knew that having the demons speak from here on in That wouldn't fit with the plan of redemption. Once was enough. And this too, he works all things for the good of God's people. Here we see Christ showing what the coming of the kingdom means for his people. Freedom and healing. He busts into the house of Satan. He ties up the bouncers and then He goes to the strong man himself and ties him up. And then he robs him clean. What power! What authority! What love for us! Here we see Christ revealed as the glorious Savior we're called to worship. Here we see Christ revealed as the one who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah in that chapter we read. 
a man familiar with suffering, a man who took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And as we continue going through this gospel, we're going to see even more of this Savior and we'll be filled even more with praise for Him, for who He is and for what He does. But for today, God calls you with His Word to think on the power, to think on the love of your Savior as is revealed here. Believe in Him for the salvation of body and soul from sin and the effects of sin, including disease in whatever form it's found. And then think also about the implications this has for how we speak with others who may not know the Lord Jesus in a saving way. When we talk about what Christ has done for us, do we restrict that to what He's done for our souls? Or do we glorify Him as the Savior of body and soul? Do we portray Him to others around us as the one who breaks all the bonds of sin and death? wherever the curse is found. We have a glorious Savior, brothers and sisters. And so when God hears our prayers for opportunities to to speak about Him, let's speak about Him in His glorious power, in the fullness of His majesty, and filled with His Spirit and taught by His Word, we'll be bringing yet more glory to the God of our salvation as we were created to do. The Lord Jesus is for His people. When you read this text, can there there be any doubt about it in your mind? He is for us. He is for you. He's on your side. Christ was delivering life from the curse of sin. He continues to do so today, and He will do so until the kingdom comes in all its fullness. And so with thankfulness, with love and with worshipful hearts. Let's all eagerly look forward to His great day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.